Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history uh, almost as much as we love making various things and food. (laughs) So what have you been up to? Well, we're we're recording this in mid-December, so naturally I have made a large amount of gingerbread. Of course, of course. I would be disappointed if you hadn't. Using my gingerbread recipe adapted from my mum's, where I put in lots more seasoning and also syrup. And yeah, there are people who do not like my gingerbread recipe because there's so much ginger in it. These people (laughs) are wrong. Is it tingly gingerbread? It is. You can feel it afterwards. Excellent. Are you are you in the crunchy gingerbread or soft gingerbread club? I like both. Like I've had grass made gingerbread, which is the crunchiest, gingeriest gingerbread I've ever had. Mm-hmm. But I like making soft gingerbread. I just I like the feel of it more. Just like it's a weird it, thing to say. I like the way it feels on my teeth. <laughs> I know. No, I was about to say that it's is really satisfying because it's like firm but soft and warm and fluffy. It like rasps against your teeth mm. in a good way. <laughs> yeah, delicious. Um, I I like both, but that's just because I get one or the other, depending on how long I forget that my gingerbread is in the oven. <laughs> that makes sense. It um. <laughs> fits what I know of you. <laughs> but yeah, December baking season is upon us and it is wonderful. It is. Um, I'm also planning a baking experiment next week, but I will let you know after I've done that how it went. Hey, I am intrigued. I, I, can you tell us what it is? Or mead cake. Ooh, never heard of that. I mean, when I went online, I found like three recipes, and one of them didn't actually have mead in it. So I'm making my own. Yeah, one didn't have mead in it. One was just, yeah, a cake with mead in it, as you would expect. And the other one was made with box cake mix, which is like, it's not really helpful because you don't say what brand. And like, firstly, I wouldn't use a box cake mix anyway because I'm like that. But secondly, if you don't say what brand, you just say two boxes. Like they come in different sizes. So is this, um, like, is this something you heard about and then decided to make, or did were you just like, I want to put mead in a cake? Um, Nick was like, you should put mead in a cake. <laughs> <laughs> because because they found out that I was getting them mead. And also, like, when I put things in cakes. <laughs> that is the best reason to invent a food. So I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> Excellent. What have you been up to? Are you continuing your trying to finish things? I am. Um, well, I made a Christmas cake, which I will talk about later, because this episode is going to be about sorry, Christmas pudding made a Christmas pudding, but I'll talk about that later because um, this episode is about Christmas pudding. Um, Christmas I did... pudding is a different thing that we will probably cover next year, let's be honest. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> very much. Um, I did also finish a hat. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this last time. Um, the, the accidental ombre. Yeah, it is the accidental ombre hat. So it's it's done. <laughs> it's a little bit big, um, but I kind of like that because it fits my hair in. I have a lot of hair. You know the feeling. So it feels good to like have something that's done and I can actually wear it because I needed a hat. It, it is the hat times. Um, so yeah, finishing things going pretty well so far. But okay. Um, yeah, so the finishing things is going pretty well at the moment, but now I have to move on to garments. Um, <laughs> like that was my last small thing to finish. So I've I've got a shrug. It's a rainbow shrug that I was knitting that is next to get finished. I've done about half of it, so we'll see. So you said you're going to be talking about Christmas pudding. Yeah, I thought that would be an appropriate topic for a mid-December episode. Or it might be late yeah. December by the time this um, comes out. I, th I think this goes out in January. Really? Oh, but okay. Also, but also Christmas pudding is delicious, despite what Nick will tell you. Um, yeah, I have mixed feelings about Christmas pudding, because I, I know it's not something that everyone likes. In fact, I would probably say the majority of people don't like it anymore, really. But it has its diehard fans. Hello. <laughs> I used to hate it. I used to absolutely love it. Now I love it. Yeah, I never liked it either. Um, and that meant I was I would always get chocolate pudding at Christmas, which was great. But I'm I don't know if my tastes are maturing or it's just because this time I made it myself. But I'm really looking forward to the Christmas pudding. So we'll see. So um, I in the process of kind of gathering information for this. Um, I watched a few videos and things as well as um, reading stuff and um, Max Miller of Tasting History, who we had on the podcast a while ago, uh, recently put up a video about Christmas pudding, which is really good. So you should go watch it. <laughs> and um, he makes a pudding and talks about it quite a bit. So I'm not going to go into um, the sort of deep history stuff here that much because that's kind of been done in a few places um but I will talk a bit more about the kind of folklore social tradition side oh, that's what we're here for indeed <laughs> um so the, the concept of puddings is pretty old um they they are like one of the older dishes um so the traditional way that you make a pudding is you boil it in a cloth or you steam it. Um, or, and in the case of some of the oldest puddings, um, they were boiled in like animal casings, um, like, like sausages, basically. Like a haggis. Yeah, a haggis is a pudding. It's a meat pudding. Yeah, so um, they might be, they might use like the stomach linings or the 
uh, intestines of animals. Um, like black pudding is another one. So uh, for anyone that doesn't know, that's like a blood sausage. But it's also a pudding because it's got other, it's got like oats in, hasn't it? Yeah, um, I, th I think the standard is blood, oats, plenty of pepper and big chunks of fat. Which makes it sound disgusting, but <laughs> I love it. It's another one that divides people, but I also like it. I find it quite rich, though. Sort of, I have it in moderation. I mean, it is blood. Um, but yes, yeah, so a, a pudding is a mixture of things that you boil up um, these days in a cloth or steam it. And um, they're not so popular anymore because they are quite heavy. Um, and it's partly that suet content so that the meat fat although you can get vegetable suet um the that, that gives them that kind of stodgy spongy texture yeah it's specifically the fat from around the kidneys i think anymore really um and we don't need that to get us through the winter anymore because we can go to the supermarket and buy like fruits and stuff um it's grown in other countries so it's they're, they're not so popular anymore at least in britain and i believe in america pudding is a different thing um it's it's like a custody type um, yeah, milk okay, pudding type thing um which i think is probably to do with and this is where it gets more confusing pudding being a generic term for dessert now Um, so I think that's often because they contain this this suet content, the, which is beef fat, although you can get vegetable suet, that gives yeah, it that kind of... Kidney fat, I think, isn't it? I believe so, yeah. Um, which gives it that kind of spongy, like, stodgy texture, which, um, again, people don't really like sometimes, but I love it because it's, mm. it's great in winter. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like a heavy wet cake, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I guess, and it makes it quite firm as well. That classic Christmas pudding firmness. Yeah, it's it's closer to the texture of a kitchen sponge than a sponge cake, I think. <laughs> which again isn't making it sound great. But... It, there are just some things it's hard to describe accurately while making them sound good, despite the fact that they're great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we don't really eat them that much anymore, at least in Britain. Uh, they've kind of gone out of fashion, um, and I think that's because they're they're quite heavy, mm. um, and we don't really need that to get us through the winter anymore because we can go to the supermarket and get fresh fruit from other countries, um, and we have central heating, so we don't need hot, stodgy pudding inside us to warm us up, um, but. I, yeah, I still quite like puddings. So the earlier puddings as well weren't necessarily sweet. Um, and I think a lot of more traditional, uh, perhaps traditional British foods are, can still be like that. So like steak and kidney pudding, um, for example, or black pudding like we mentioned. Um, to make it even more confusing, <laughs> the word pudding now means it, it's a generic term for dessert. So you're putting... Apart from Yorkshire puddings. 
Oh, yeah. Which <laughs> those... are neither of the above. No, those are the exception because they're not, they're, they're baked, so they're not really a pudding. They're but kind I... of baked and fried at the same time because you, mm. you get the fat hot and you put the batter in it and then you put it in the oven. <laughs> I have to say, although we're talking about this and like being all like intellectual, oh, it's not a Yorkshire pudding. Uh, I wouldn't go to Yorkshire and say Yorkshire pudding is not a pudding. <laughs> I would not do that. <laughs> I'm not brave enough. I mean, I would, but I'm Lancastrian. <laughs> it's practically required to throw shade yeah. in Yorkshire. Right? I think as a southerner, I would get no quarter <laughs> from either <laughs> county. <laughs> I think it might be one of those, oh, my friends can insult me, but no one else wants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, puddings as I'll be talking about here are the type of pudding where it's a mixed bunch of things that's been steamed or boiled so the earlier ones um, weren't necessarily sweet um, in fact there was a lot of mixing of sweeter and more savoury flavours in the past um, so things like you get meat with dried fruits and spices and things. Um, so in the form of curry, which is the medieval late 14th century cookbook that we also did an earlier episode on, there is a recipe for a figgy porridge type thing. So we've got the concept of putting dried fruit in a, a sweet like porridge dish but we haven't got pudding time yet. Um, then, as the, the pudding comes into being in the next couple of centuries, um, we get the probably more savoury type puddings. Um, so, for example, peas pudding from the famous rhyme, peas pudding hot, peas pudding cold, peas pudding in the pot four days old. So, what that actually is? Yeah, so it's like a like beans and peas were a big part of the diet for a lot of the poorer people or people living in rural areas in Britain. Uh, so basically, everyone who wasn't a lord, you would be eating a lot of beans and peas, and the point being that you could dry them so you could eat them later or sustain you through the winter so during the winter you would be eating a lot of peas pudding well like what actually is peas pudding because i've always imagined it as just sort of slices of mushy peas <laughs> um i think it's more kind of on the porridgey side um it's like a thick porridge um i don't i don't have an exact recipe for this but i will just go look up. Yeah, it's kind of like a thick pudding, uh, a, a thick porridge type thing. Um, so still not really your traditional pudding, but it is, it it's is like a mixture that you boil, yeah. Um, and you can use rehydrated peas for it. So... A winter staple. There's there's a lot of references references to it. Um, it makes sense. It's hot and there's going to be a lot of protein. Yeah, 
um, but probably will get boring if you're eating it like four days in a row. Probably. <laughs> so puddings became quite popular in the 18th century, particularly plum pudding, which is kind of anything with dried fruit in it, really. It doesn't oh, have yeah, to be plums. Because there was, there was an English heritage video, wasn't there, about figgy pudding? basically oh. explaining this oh awesome i don't think i've seen that i've seen the christmas pudding one um but yeah it, it doesn't have to be plums it doesn't have to be figs uh it can be like any whatever fruit you have really yeah because Which... it, it basically just meant dried fruit at that point didn't it mm-hmm. um and in the winter it would have to be dried fruit because if you're in britain you don't you don't really have any other kind of fruit in the winter. Um, plus... So apples, if you've stored them right? Yeah, apples will keep quite a long time. Um, and apple is an ingredient in the traditional Christmas pudding recipe. Ah. Uh-huh. That makes sense. <laughs> um, because, again, they're... The yep, again, they're one of the only things that you still have around that is, like, a, f- a fruit or vegetable. Um, so... Dried fruit could also be kind of expensive, depending on what you are getting. Um, When you're getting into the 19th century, which is when Christmas pudding becomes a thing, um, raisins... it's only Victorian, is it? Yeah. Um, So Christmas pudding as, as a thing existed before. It just wasn't necessarily Christmas pudding. It was more of a... The pudding came before the Christmas, I guess. Um, it, it, so, was a, it was sort of stuck on the Christmas. Yeah, so eating a sweet pudding with dried fruit in it and spices and things was a popular winter dish beforehand. Um, but it was more, it became associated with Christmas because at Christmas you would put all the fancy stuff that you could get in it. So your fancier dried fruits, your candied peels, your more expensive spices, and your brandy or your alcohol would go into it at Christmas. Dump all the good stuff in there. Yeah. (laughs) So that becomes the Christmas pudding. Uh, And as far as I understand, one of the first times that it's given the specific title Christmas pudding is in Eliza Acton's uh, cookery book. Um, which is that from the 1840s? I've forgotten. I should know this. I feel like you'll know. Yep, 1845. Awesome. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's when it becomes Christmas pudding, although puddings like that are still being eaten kind of all year round, but just probably not so fancy. In fact, um, and I'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, my great grandma, whose pudding recipe, Christmas pudding recipe, I will talk about later, um, would make all of her puddings at once in November and then eat them year round. <laughs> um, so it's it's now so distinctive this Christmas pudding thing, and the recipe hasn't really changed since the Victorian era. Like it's still that kind of dodgy suet raisins dried fruit mixed peel brandy 
um, sugar, all that stuff. It's basically the same thing. Um, because I guess that, that just became traditional at that point. Um, mm -hmm. I think the Victorians were all about tradition. And there were a lot of new traditions coming in at that time as well, especially around Christmas, um, like Christmas trees and Christmas crackers. But once those things became a tradition, cook them in a basin or a mold. So the original way of making a Christmas pudding, make it into a big bullet in the copper. So you just kind of... <laughs> this is a crown. It'd probably be impractical to make one that big. And then I read my great-grandma's pudding recipe, <laughs> which you have to steam for eight hours. Uh, bigger families back then, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Like I mean, these, gets some. <laughs> these puddings are literally like cannonballs. Um, which I'm sure was pretty impressive on a Christmas table, especially if it's covered in flaming brandy. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the setting it on fire part. Oh, yeah, the setting it on fire part. So um, <laughs> during this era as well, I think, um, the custom of pouring brandy all over your Christmas pudding and setting it on fire also becomes quite popular. And we still do that. <laughs> and it's really fun. Is, is there a specific reason we do that or is it just did someone just do it because it was fun and then everyone else started doing it i i think it's just aesthetic yeah because <laughs> like why not i mean flambeing things is is a thing right so well, yeah but more as a way of cooking them than just going look there's fire on the table yeah, to be fair, there is no reason for it other than that <laughs> <laughs> however there is a long tradition of the symbol of fire and light at Christmas time or at winter solstice adjacent time. So I, I'm not surprised it kind of became a thing. Right. Um, I'm now going to go on to a couple of recipes. Um, so when I made it, I used a pudding basin mm -hmm. and that became more popular because it's just it's just easier it's less messy if you make it in a pudding cloth you then have to deal with well first of all if it goes wrong and you haven't tied your cloth up tight enough then that can be pudding disaster mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if water gets into your pudding it's it's gonna go wrong um and secondly you've then got to deal with the whole mess of getting it out of the cloth and then I guess, washing the cloth somehow so that you can use it again. Um, yeah, that, that does sound gross. Yeah, so particularly if it's all gone cold and you've got to try and get this congealed pudding crumb stuff off your, your cloth. Um, yeah, I don't want to have to do that. So um, doing it in a pudding basin, um, so moving away from that cannonball shape and going more into that kind of flat-topped half dome shape um kind of comes in hemisphere yeah yeah that's the word <laughs> <laughs> or if you're super fancy you can use a mold you know like a jelly mold if you've ever seen victorian jelly molds they are fantastic oh, i bet victorians loved making little like castle shaped christmas puddings oh yeah 
who who wouldn't love a pudding castle? <laughs> <laughs> Especially one that's on fire. Well, for the king of kings. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the way I elected to do it as well. And um, so I guess the Christmas pudding is kind of a victim of its own success because it became so traditional and so iconic of being associated with Christmas that it just, it just didn't really change for about a hundred years. Um, and now, because it's not changed, because it's still that traditional, very rich, very heavy thing, it's not really to our taste anymore. And although a lot of people, especially in Britain, a lot of people still have one at Christmas, it's not something that everyone's going to like. Um, like there will be maybe one or two, maybe three people that will eat it. And then like the younger people in the family will just go for cake or something. Um, like it's it's not that popular anymore. Yeah, I think... I think that's where the Yule log comes in, isn't it? It's like, well, you can have the Swiss roll. Yeah, <laughs> this chocolate-covered um, Swiss roll. Although, I guess there is there is kind of an effort to reinvent it nowadays. You get things like, you know, the the Heston Blumenthal one with the, the whole orange in the middle that sold out of everywhere a few years ago? I didn't hear about that. But it's came for Heston. <laughs> it's very peak Heston, yeah. Putting um, a whole orange in the middle is just combining it with like a pond pudding. So you just got two suet puddings, not a lot of people like just mashed together. Yeah, this is pond pudding erasure. As a Sussex person, I am outraged. How is this helping Heston? <laughs> um, we do like to bash Heston on this podcast. <laughs> so um with with no further ado um i'm gonna talk what goes into this pudding now um i was unaware that we had any family recipes at all really but when i when i went to make christmas pudding um i mentioned it to my mum and she was like oh, we have a family Christmas pudding recipe. It's from my grandma, which is my my great-grandmother. So that was really exciting. And she managed to find this recipe, which is written on a little bit of card, um, from my, my great-grandmother, so my grandmother on my mother's side, whose name, and I kid you not, was Ida Fish. That's amazing. <laughs> um, there was also a member of the Fish family who married a guy whose surname was Bird. So that's like a family joke. How do you turn a bird into a fish? You get them married. So, your family is amazing. Yeah, country names, hut. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and she told me a nice little story. Apparently, um, my mum would go with her brother to my great-grandma's house um, on stir-up Sunday, which is the fifth Sunday before Christmas, which was traditionally the day on which you would make your Christmas pudding. And I know this one. Yeah. Um, if you this... make your Christmas pudding 
on the Sunday before Advent, it won't go off. It will not. In fact, <laughs> in one of the recipe books I have, it says the pudding is good for up to two years. Presumably feeding it the whole time as well. <laughs> I guess. Um, there's no instructions to feed it. Uh, but if you did so, feeding it would it probably being, be better. For those that don't know, feeding it being just adding some alcohol to it every now and then. Although this is m making me imagine a Little Shop of Horrors type pudding monster that eats people. <laughs> 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 we've established blood pudding is different so yeah because of the sugar and the alcohol your christmas pudding is is good for a long time it will be <laughs> fine <laughs> but you do need to re-steam it or re-boil it before you eat it otherwise it will be quite dense not so cold mm. yeah cold and stodgy not great warm and stodgy winner yeah Warm stodge is what built Britain. <laughs> that is entirely true. So <laughs> they would go to, to their grandma's house on Stir Up Sunday and help her make the pudding. And everyone in the family has to stir the pudding for good luck, obviously. <laughs> and so as, as mentioned, um, Great Granny Ida would make all her a large quantity of pudding. <laughs> <laughs> um, this recipe contains uh, a pound of suet, pound of suet, <laughs> a pound and a half of raisins, uh, the same as sultanas. <laughs> Three pounds of fruit. Yeah, some mixed peel, a uh, pound of sugar, <laughs> six eggs. <laughs> Um, what of the other stuff six eggs feels kind of tame <laughs> I know <laughs> um, yeah also uh, flour a large cooking apple and it has to be a cooking apple I have lots of feelings about this if you use an <laughs> eating apple it will be too sweet <laughs> well, that uh, yeah um, it has mixed peel a few almonds some bicarbonate of soda uh, carrot, grated carrot, um, the rind and juice of an orange and a lemon. So not and, just the zest, like the whole peel? Uh, yeah, so you can kind of grate it in, which is what I do, uh, or you could just like put the peel in, or you could use candied peel instead, I guess. Mm. Um, and alcohol. So... Apparently, my great-grandma used to use a bottle of brown ale. Unexpected. <laughs> um, so it doesn't have to be brandy. In fact, in her recipe, it says um, six to eight tablespoons. Although I'm assuming she used a fairly liberal measure on this because reportedly it was uh, like a whole bottle of brown ale, but I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to ask again. So um, it stipulates brown ale, brandy, or dark barley wine. So I yeah, assume it was... It's going to be very different flavours. 
Yeah, I guess. Um, I think brandy is more of that like ooh, alcoholic thing, whereas mm. ale is a very distinctive taste. Um, and I'm not sure what barley wine would taste like, but I assume that's just you use whatever you've got or what you, whatever you can afford at the time because brandy mm. can get kind of expensive. So I, I really like that because it kind of shows that it's not just one homogenous thing like it makes it a bit more real because you know people are using what they have or what they want to put in or what they can get that that is the fun of family recipes and old recipes isn't it so obviously I didn't make this recipe to the letter because it says there's no method given except for the sentence steam effect at least eight hours and I do not have that kind of patience nor do I need that much pudding <laughs> so um, I very much reduced the quantities to make only one pudding which only needed to be steamed for an hour and a half in a pressure cooker. That does seem a lot more sensible. <laughs> yeah um but apparently she... you want to know how big this pudding would be i know well apparently she made several puddings so like a large one and couple medium-sized ones and then a few smaller ones as well so there were there were multiple puddings involved okay <laughs> although i yeah if you made this one big one i assume it would be just steaming away there all day <laughs> Um, Christmas pudding the size of a small dog <laughs> yeah I did also have the aid of a recipe from uh, and I don't know what the title of this book is because the cover's partly torn off but it's a 1970s cookbook by Marguerite Patton which has some fantastic recipes in and I'll certainly go into more of them at some point um right let me I just find book episode yes <laughs> let me just find it here christmas pudding so i have found it um for some reason it's next to oxtail soup is it because they're both delicious i i don't know i've never eaten oxtail soup um <laughs> it's the best soup but this this recipe um, is slightly more reasonable than the one that includes a bottle of brown ale. Um, so yeah, this is the one that says six tablespoons. <laughs> and this one also includes uh, golden syrup, to which the other recipe, which is probably about 100 years old, includes black treacle. Um, Quite different and those two, aren't they? sugar um yes although they're essentially the same thing i guess it's all sugar right it's all sugar but they've got different flavors like my parking recipe uses black treacle and golden syrup because they they have different flavor profiles okay yeah so i think that's why the traditional christmas pudding has that very dark rich taste for mm. for our americans that uh black treacle is molasses so, yeah, this 1970s one also has instructions on how to make it in a pressure cooker, um, which 
dramatically reduces the time needed. So it says here about an hour and a half to two hours, depending on the size of the pudding. Uh, so there we go. That is a potted history of Christmas pudding. Um, I'll report back on how it tastes <laughs> next time. Um, yeah, that went on a little bit longer than I expected. There's just a lot to talk about, in fact. <laughs> I didn't expect Christmas pudding to be so rich. Ha 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 ha. Puns. <laughs> Would you like to perhaps wash down? That Christmas pudding. Oh, with, yeah, with what? With Mayan brew. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I literally cannot think of anyone else uh, of anything worse. But I would like to know about iron brew. Hello, I'm mod. I'm mod paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Um, before I talk about Iron Brew, I do just want to remind our listeners that we do have a Patreon with access to a Discord server and recipes and the potential for us to make your very own mini-episode on whatever you want at patreon.com slash breadandthread. Um, we also have an email address, breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com, in case you want to throw any ideas our way, or if you are interested in doing an episode with us. So, I know I ask this a lot, but the answer is always unexpected. How old do you think I am, Brewers? <laughs> Just from experience of things that we've looked up for this podcast, I would think older than expected. So I'm going to take a guess. Is that 100 years old? You're not far off. Okay. Um, yeah. But where do you think it's from? Oh, it's not going to be Scottish, is it? Give, give me a country. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. So, uh, Germany? Okay, so the first drink that I can find called Iron Brew, spell actually spelled Iron Brew, as opposed to I-R-N-B-R-U, I can't speak, as opposed to I-R-N-B-R-U, um, is actually from New York in 1889. Oh, wow. I did not see that coming. Yeah. Um, the concept of Iron Brew is American, um, even though you can't get it in... Definitely Canada. I think um, there's a different formulation for North America um, because there's a colorant in it which isn't allowed in Canada. Oh, wow. So why is it called Iron Brew? Um, that is actually something that I've really struggled to find. 
Um, it does have um, ferric citrate in it. Um, ammonium ferric citrate. So is, Which, is that actual iron? Well, um, it's a molecule which has iron in it. Okay. So it's supposed to, like, make you strong. I, I think that's the idea, yeah. Um, so it was produced by the Mars and Waldstein Chemicals Company. Um, just because... That was the sort of people making soft drinks in the 1800s. Um, but it got copied there and eventually here. There was a London company that made uh, flavourings, that made an iron brew drink in 1898. And then in 1899, Bar, which still makes iron brew, as well as a lot of other soft drinks. Um, trademark, not trademark, um, have records saying that they were selling it then. Even though officially they started selling it in 1901, so what is the truth? <laughs> this is, this is my my new conspiracy theory that something <laughs> happened with Iron Brew between those two years. Are you an Iron Brew truther? I am. <laughs> an Iron Brewther? Let's go with that. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just a weird thing. Um, and then in the 40s, they changed how they spelt it from Iron Brew the normal words to IRN-BRU, which I thought that was going to be a more recent branding thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. That that sounds like the, you know, trendy replacing letters thing that... But, well, I suppose, thinking about it, that's always been a thing. Yeah, but the the trademark application for that spelling is from July 1946. Wow. Um, in 1967, a bar tartan based on the iron brew colours of orange, blue and white was created um, and was registered as the iron brew tartan with the Scottish Tartan Society <laughs> on the 12th of September 1997. <laughs> I kind of... An iron brew kilt that is <laughs> entirely doable. I kind of need this in my life. <laughs> um, and yeah, they, they now sell 20 cans a second. Oh. That's, that's a lot of iron brew. So, as I said, it's made by bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so Coca-Cola is the number one selling soft drink almost everywhere in the world, apart from Iceland, Peru, various places in the Middle East where it's Pepsi, and Scotland where it's Iron Brew. 
known as Scotland's second national drink after whiskey. I love that. <laughs> Although sometimes it's made in Russia. Ah. Why? Is it just... It's just easier for distribution. So de despite them saying in the 80s that it was made in Scotland from Gerda's, <laughs> it's actually made in, made in Scotland and Russia from secret ingredients. Ah. They claim that only three people know the recipe. <laughs> the founder of Bar, his daughter, and one member of staff who's in charge of actually making the stuff. Oh, wow. So, does it still have the iron chemical in it? It does still contain ammonium ferric sulfate. Um, wow. Sorry, ferric citrate. Um, it also contains caffeine and quinine. <laughs> I mean, I guess that will cure what ails you. Which I find it interesting are listed as flavorings. Okay. Because there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of debate about what iron brew actually tastes like. A, lo a lot of people say bubblegum. I strongly disagree. It tastes like nothing bubblegum flavoured I've ever had. Um, having, although having I do think it tastes pink. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever had iron brew, so I can't really weigh in on this one. closest comparison I can make is rosehip. Like, I, I had some rosehip tea, and my immediate thought was, if I put sugar in this, it would taste like iron brew. Hello? Oh, no. Hello? Is that better? Can, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep. Um, where did I cut out? Um... When I said I've never had iron brew. Okay. Yeah, um I've was that before or after I said about bubblegum? Before, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of people have seen say that it tastes like bubblegum, which it doesn't taste like any bubblegum or bubblegum flavoured product I've ever had, even though it does taste pink. Like, it just, it tastes pink. The closest comparison I can make, though, I think, is rosehip. Okay. Like, I've I've had rosehip tea, and my immediate thought when I tried it for the first time was, if this had sugar in it, it would taste like iron brew. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going with rosehip. If you want rosehip pop, that's what you want. Wow, I mean, I've... I've had rosehip because rosehip cordial, but mm. can't I don't know. I don't like fizzy drinks in the first place, really. So probably a miss from me. But I kind of get why it's so popular now. Yeah, it's. I mean, I love it. Scotland clearly loves it. <laughs> um. So I mentioned the Made in Scotland from Gerda's was their like their big ad campaign in the 80s. In 1998, they had the Advertising Standards Authority's most complained about advert 
which featured a picture of a cow and the words, when I'm a burger, I want to be washed down with iron brew. And I'm what? sending you a picture of that now, Hazel. <laughs> That's bizarre. This is an actual advert that they put out in the 90s, which received 700 complaints. <laughs> wow. I can't imagine why. Mmm. <laughs> um... So I have two more Iron Brew, Iron Brew facts for you. Okay. Um, last year, they brought out Iron Brew Energy. Because it wasn't energetic enough already? I, I cannot find how exactly it's an energy drink, but apparently it's an energy drink. And also, Iron Brew Crimbo Juice, a limited edition festive version. I'm sorry? Iron Brew Crimbo Juice. <laughs> um, which was apparently spiced ginger flavour. I'm speechless. <laughs> that sounds like the street name for a drug. Crimbo juice. <laughs> yeah. Thing is, though, the word crimbo is so like middle-aged, middle-class that I can only <laughs> imagine it as some sort of like cocaine coffee, <laughs> which I think counts as an energy drink. <laughs> Technically, yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll do something. <laughs> I mean, so my final Iron Brew fact is that in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn had his first official trip to Scotland as the leader of the Labour Party. Um, and was photographed drinking Iron Brew on the train home because earlier he'd refused a can. And it was pointed out that it would probably harm his image in Scotland if he didn't drink it. So close. Oh, I'm not getting anything. Oh. Okay. Fact. Am I back? Um, hello? Ah. Oh, okay. I think it's working. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Do you want to do Corbin again? Yeah. Um. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> it's just... Anyway, not politics. Um, so my last fact is that in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn had his first official trip to Scotland as leader of the Labour Party. And on the train home was photographed drinking Iron Brew because he refused a can earlier and people were worried it was going to affect his image in Scotland if he didn't drink it. <laughs> I, 
also did not see that one coming. It's just, it's a drink that's full of surprises. And wow. Also, the color orange. <laughs> so, Iron Brew could make or break the next election. I mean, I I don't want to get into that. There's <laughs> there's just a lot going on with that. <laughs> so anyway, thank thank you for listening to our strange and confusing podcast. <laughs> it, the only place where you can hear Christmas pudding and Iron Brew discussed in the same space. Um, yeah, when this episode goes out, I will try to remember to post that Iron Brew advert, because honestly, what on earth were they thinking? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's eye-catching. Yeah? How much of that eye-catchingness is the fact that half of the advert is bright orange? Hmm. I mean, it's certainly memorable. I wouldn't say positively. Yeah, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to talk to us about this, um, we do have a Twitter. Um, <laughs> just at Bread and Thread. If you need to decompress after seeing this Iron Brew advert. Or just send us pictures of Christmas puddings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's much jollier. <laughs> So thank you for listening and we will talk to you next time. We did it!